coming up on the Tall Mike Wine Podcast. The drink of choice at engineering school oh, let's hear was essentially a moonshine. Uh, in India, it's called country liquor because it was made in the country, but this liquor was made of anything and everything. And I forget whether it was like a Wine Wednesday or a Wine Friday. I suspect it was more <laughs> This might be prior to the Wine Wednesday phenomenon. Who knows? Maybe even Taco Tuesday hadn't been invented yet. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I like the wine business enough that that's something I would like to be close to rather than putting my money in some stocks and bonds. I was like, let me plant a vineyard. And now, the Tall Mike Wine Podcast. And just like that, the podcast begins. This is the first podcast of what we hope to be a whole bunch, the Tall Mike Wine Podcast. And I will explain to you the genesis of that name. And if you've never met me before and you've happened upon this podcast by accident, I thank you. I hope you stick around and listen. My name's Mike. I'm a tall guy. And for about the last 25 years, I have been obsessed with wine. Uh, It started out as a fairly mild obsession when I was in my latter 20s. And then it led me into all sorts of nefarious things, my obsession with wine. One of those things was a career in the restaurant business for about 20 years where I was in charge of wine lists and wine list development and beverage programs and all these things that happen in restaurants. And then for the last a little over three years, I've been working at an actual winery. So now I can say I'm in the wine business. We're bringing the show to you from a very nice room. It is a room we call the Vintner's Room here at Nicholson Ranch Winery in Sonoma, California. This is where the podcast will come from. At least that's the plan. And the reason that is, is because that is the winery where I am employed. Before I did all of the wine stuff in restaurants, I was actually behind a microphone for about 15 years. From the time I was a very young adult until I was in my early 30s, I was a disc jockey all over my native state of Washington. So now I am back behind a microphone, but not in in a studio. I'm pushing all the buttons myself and putting this whole thing together. This is episode one of what we hope to be a whole bunch of episodes, Uh, but we'll see what happens. You're going to experience a lot of firsts because this is my first podcast and the first episode, and my first guest is here, and his name is Deepak Golrajani. Deepak is the owner and winemaker here at Nicholson Ranch Winery in Sonoma. So yes, he is my boss, but he's actually a a pretty amazing guy. You might have already kind of guessed from his name, he's not from here. Uh, So that in and of itself is pretty fascinating. He is a winemaker in California that was born and raised in Bombay, India. Welcome to the show, Deepak. Thank you, Mike. My pleasure to be and very honored to be here on your inaugural podcast. Thank you so much. Deepak and I are sipping wine. We just finished a session of tasting wine for the Nicholson Ranch Wine Club, and we're both uh, sipping Pinot right now. Cheers, Deepak. Cheers. Let's talk about you. Now, I've worked for you for uh, a little over three years. Actually, it'll be four years this summer. And... Slowly, over the course of the first few months and years, I got a, a, the gist of your story, mm-hmm. which, as I said, is a, is a pretty amazing story to think about. You know, there aren't too many people from India making wine in the United States. You know, I, I just kind of have it in the very broad strokes. You know, he was born in Bombay. 
he went off to engineering school. He came to the United States for grad school. He came to California, was turned on to wine, had an opportunity to plant a vineyard in the mid-90s, and now he owns a winery, and the winery has been here since that time, 1995. But I want to go back and just fill in some of the real gaps to me. Like, you were a very small child in Bombay, India. Tell me about that. Tell me about you growing up. Like, what are some of your first memories? Because what I'm trying to get to is, like, how did it all happen? Were the seeds planted at a very young age? Tell me about your family life as a, as a small boy. Well, that's taken me back. <laughs> that's <laughs> really taken me back for sure. But talking about growing up in Bombay, Bombay, you know, even in the 60s and 70s when I was growing up, Bombay was a city of maybe 8 million people. Today, it's probably well over 20 million people, but it was always densely populated. The buildings that we lived in, the apartment building that I lived in was about six stories tall. It was part of a compound of three buildings that were all kind of together. You made a lot of friends really easily. You always had a bunch of people in your own age group with similar interests. And as a young boy, all our interests tend to focus on cricket. That's the one thing you always did, even if you didn't have space. When, you know, if, if you guys know a little bit about cricket, you see people wearing, you know, white shirts and white pants and green grass uh, cricket uh, pitches, as they're right, called. Right, the pitch. But in Bombay, I said there's not a lot of green space, so you played in the parking lot in between the two apartment buildings. So, how old were you the first time you played cricket? Probably maybe six. Okay, all right. But I probably played it even before that because, you know, it's like baseball. You get a you have a bat and you have a ball and that you need two people and that's pretty much it. Right. You don't need a lot of stuff. You don't need a lot of stuff. And you can really. improvise. You can improvise so you can <laughs> play with two people. You can play with 20 people. The formal game has got a lot more rules and all the Our little uh, playground or parking lot game you know we made up the rules as we went along so who's there in the house with you at this age when you're young you just started to play cricket your parents are there i know you have a sister my parents my sister but also my grandmother and one of my aunts we okay. all lived together so okay. we had about six people that we lived together between 800 or a thousand one thousand square feet and in Bombay, that's a decent size apartment. Okay. Yeah. Space is, was as, as, at a premium back then, and space is a premium today. So it's a very tight space, but was a very happy childhood. Who was cooking the food? You know, that's the other thing that I actually remember a lot about my childhood is the smells and aromas of, of home, particularly of home. The rest of Bombay, too. My mom was the main cook, very traditional uh, role in an Indian family. But what was, it, though it was a traditional role, both my parents had, were not as traditional as you may think. Uh, my mother came from the southern part of India on the west coast, and my father came from a northern part of was India and now is part of Pakistan, so the very northwest part of India. And their two cultures and their two cuisines are pretty different. My mother became quite adept at, I guess, bridging the cultures, marrying into my, effectively, not just my father, but in India, it'd be considered marrying into my father's family. She adopted a lot of the cultural norms and the cuisines of my father's family. 
And so growing up, she would, you know, do a lot of the cooking, but it was mainly North Indian cooking, very aromatic, a lot of like clove and cinnamon and um, spices like that in the cooking. Your mom's doing the cooking. Was there wine on the table? No wine on the table. <laughs> okay. uh, no wine on the table. India in the 70s or probably even into the 80s, India does not have a wine culture, did not have, I should correct myself, did not have a wine culture. Okay. India was ruled by the British, the British Empire for 200 years. And so they certainly influenced, uh, influenced a lot, but they particularly influenced the drinking habits of Indians. So for India, it's all about beer and scotch. Wine today has become an important component as well as it has become globally, but when I was growing up, there was no wine at all. So, so you're having dinner with your family as a youngster, and there's beer or scotch. Yeah, my father would, from time to time, have a glass of scotch, or if, you know, guests came over, it would be beer or scotch, it would be primarily. Or if we went to somebody's house, and back in those days in India, that's what you primarily did, is people came over for dinner, or you went over for dinner. Eating out was a rarity, and like that was a you know truly a celebration or something. But typically, we went over to our families or friends' houses, or they'd come over. So, one other part about being in Bombay: Bombay was a melting of a lot of cultures in my family, but in many other families. So, if you want to visit somebody else, very likely they came from some other part of India which also meant that cuisine was pretty different from what you ate at home. Okay, so this, there's, a, there's something analogous here to what happens in this country, I guess. If you look at the big cities, Bombay is a big city. If you go to big cities nowadays in the United States, most people are from somewhere else because they've moved there because that's where the jobs are. Yeah. And they bring their culture, traditions. Yeah, uh, but in for India, it was pretty unusual. So... India got independence in 1947. Prior to that, it was ruled by the British. Most people grew up, lived their entire lives in the state where they were born in. So there wasn't much blending of cultures. Bombay was always an important trading port. It was really a commercial city. So over the decades, it had certainly become a little more multicultural. But what really opened the floodgates on that was when... India got independence and the British left and people had to kind of fend for themselves and people came to Bombay to get jobs. Both my parents came to Bombay as teenagers okay, looking for work and that's probably a pretty common story and so it drew in a lot of people from all over India from all these different cultures just looking to make a living, but also it also meant that they were not bound by the culture or the norms of their own state to their own um, ancestral village or town and so right. you on. You get away from first home, time. Yeah. you get away from mom and dad, you move yeah. to the big city, you yeah. can kind of let your freak flag fly. Yeah, so Bombay was pretty much in that sense culturally progressive. Actually, coming back to my interest in wine, if this only struck me many, many years into actually once I was making wine, I was an established winemaker, was one of my father's friends 
growing up big city i didn't know where tea came from whether <laughs> it came from a plant or from something else but when i was about 10 or 12 i met this gentleman who was a good friend of my father and his job was was described to me as a tea taster i never connected the dots i never quite understood what a tea taster meant but years later i understood that it was somebody who selected graded all the tea tea grows on a plant on a bush and the leaves are plucked and then the leaves are dried out or sometimes slightly fermented and dried out and in the process you get many different qualities of tea uh the whole leaf tea is considered the best and then what's left at the end of this process is called tea dust and that's your least best quality uh, but it can produce a very nice strong cup of tea okay. and a tea taster's job is to actually grade from top to bottom all of this and so he would talk about it and i thought it was fascinating i didn't understand any of it but it was just one of these exotic things as a young person probably just stuck in my mind i won't say i thought about it much till i actually became a real winemaker and like that planted some seed in my right. head that this was interesting something you know, subliminal something, about yeah, interesting t- did you drink a lot of tea Uh, yeah but mostly of the dust variety okay. <laughs> not okay. nothing fancy just kind of stuff that was in india the word they use is kadak which all means a strong a strong cup of tea all right let's move forward you went off to engineering school like all the good indian boys was there beer yeah there wasn't that much beer but even my path to going to engineering school was not as direct initially actually i thought about going to agricultural school for about a year i kind of pursued that thinking i'd go to agricultural school and, and i have no idea why i thought about it but i was pretty serious about it till my mom i think had enough of my talk of going to agricultural school and she said what are you talking about like we own no land we don't know anybody who has any land you know this is now the late 70s early 80s and going working in agriculture wasn't much of a profession okay as such after about a year i said yeah mom probably you're probably right and said maybe i go to engineering school so then you're off to engineering school not really having too much beer at engineering school so the the drink of choice at engineering school oh, let's hear was essentially a moonshine okay uh, in india it's called country liquor mm-hmm. and i guess because it was made in the country but this liquor was made of probably anything and everything at the end what you got was a really clear liquid fire water well you got a bunch of engineering's building stills that that had to be fairly efficient yeah, right exactly they know the science yeah so were these guys making their their own uh some some were but more often than not you just walked outside of the uh, campus and there'd be a liquor store that would be selling uh, some of this country liquor and much of this country liquor was safe in terms of that it had been uh, certified to be safe by the the local government because <laughs> nobody was, was going blind yes exactly nobody was going blind but when you talk about flavor profile of this stuff uh would say not much it's very it's very distinct for sure so even if i have a sip today which i don't think i've had a sip in 30 40 years now 
but I think I could identify it right away. Wow. Though if you asked me to write down, okay, what aromas it has, <laughs> I probably couldn't come up with many words. <laughs> no. I always like to say it smells like rocket fuel. Maybe that's what it is. It's a very distinct kind of rocket fuel. Go. Whenever I'm somewhere at having a meal in a restaurant and somebody wants an after-dinner libation and somebody starts talking about grappa, that's what I start thinking about is rocket fuel because to me rock, that's that's what grappa smells like to me it's yeah, great I think probably that's a good like yeah, think of the worst grappa you ever had okay. <laughs> let's move forward you got your engineering degree computer science you came to the United States NYU business school tell me about uh, the culture shock yeah so I came to New York to go to business school New York was not as much of a culture shock in some ways, being another big city similar to, well, a big city like Bombay with very different cultures, but on a day-to-day basis, people were kind of the same. I mean, in terms of when you're standing in line for a bus, you didn't make conversation. You did not make conversation with the person standing in front of you. People would think that would be strange. That's in New York. Oh, and true in Bombay, too. And in Bombay, okay. And true in Bombay, too. And in New York, nobody's come to your house asking you to go play cricket with them. Yeah, New York, yeah, New York is a bunch of big buildings. Like stick not, ball. Then if, you're this is the, just, if you're out in the hoods. There's not a lot of green space in, in most of New York, except for Central Park, I guess. Was there any wine in uh, your experience at NYU? Nice dinners? No, wine, uh, no. I think my biggest impression from a... F- aromatic point of view is probably coffee more than wine okay you know my student apartment was in greenwich village and so i think got exposed to coffee and music okay not much wine so you finish up college you get your master's degree how did you end up in california i always thought i'd be in new york doing what job i thought because i had uh, a degree in technology and computer science uh, specifically, and then I had a master's degree in, in finance. And being in New York, I always thought I'd be working probably on Wall Street. Sure. They hired a lot of people, and the pay was good. So I was like, okay, that, that you know, sounds good to me. As it turned out, in October of 1987, that was probably one of the biggest stock market crashes. It was the biggest stock market crash since the Great Depression, so it really set things what back. What was that one called? Was that Black Monday? Black, Black Wednesday? Black Monday. Monday, okay. Black I, Monday. I, I think it was October. I think it was October 17th or October 19th. I remember of, they called it Black. Of 1987. Yeah. Of the week. Okay. And that pretty much rolled back a lot of people's plans, including mine. New York and that area went through a very big recession. People were getting laid off. There were no jobs. There was almost no chance of getting hired. But I got a chance to talk to a lot of people. I mean, I got a lot of interviews for jobs, and that itself was an education for me to talk to people. Interviews at what kind of companies? Most of these were big, what those days, big Wall Street firms. Some of them don't exist anymore. Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers. Okay, so uh, things that... Some that do. I'm a layman in this yeah. in this particular realm. I would think of that that's a brokerage firm or a banking firm. Yeah, it was getting late into spring, so about May, June, and I didn't have a job. And I was go, went to this one interview, and 
This gentleman, I guess, was very astute. He couldn't offer me a job, but he offered me very good advice. He very he said, go call this company up in California. They're probably a really good fit for you. And so I sent a letter back in, uh, this was now in 1988. Okay, no, we did not have internet, so I, <laughs> I, I, I sent a letter. With a, with a stamp on it. With a stamp on it to the president of this company in what turned out to be Berkeley, California. And uh, I was surprised in about three weeks, I got a letter back saying, would you like come for an interview on such and such date in June? There are some young people listening to this show right now that are saying, three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but a letter did come back inviting me for the interview and... Uh, I don't know whether I sent a letter back or I may have called on the phone to set up, to, you know, firm up the plans. And I came in June to Berkeley, California for the interview and it was an all-day interview. And my um, the person I worked for became my boss was this sort of jovial-looking, not a very jovial personality, a Frenchman from Alsace whose name is Daniel Beck. All right, I'm uh, talking about French people now. Yeah, I'm sniffing. Uh, I'm sniffing a little bit of a little bit of wine yeah. coming into your atmosphere. Uh, 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 yeah. We went out to lunch the day of the interview, and only weeks or months later, I realized the place we went to lunch was was a cafe of Chez Panisse. Oh my goodness! Chez Panisse is you know for people in the Bay Area. Most people know Chez Panisse is this iconic farm-to-table, the first really well-known farm-to-table restaurant in the Bay Area. Alice Waters is the owner and chef. Restaurant opened, I think, either in the late 60s or early 70s. I think you're right. And, Somewhere uh, in that time frame for sure. And so it was, you know, by the time I got to eat, there was already famous, but I didn't know that stuff. <laughs> Months later, I Oh, realized, you didn't know that stuff? Well, I, I did not know. Yeah, when I... Had lunch there. It was like, you know, I just won the job. I didn't right. care where I had lunch. But we had wine, glass of wine, and I don't remember what it was. Mm-hmm. But I did get the job, and I came to work for this company in Berkeley in July of 1988. And what I do remember about wine is I was here by myself. I didn't, I'd never been to California ever in my life before. I didn't know a single person here. But this... The company I worked for had a lot of young people, and they organized a weekly wine tasting. This is at work. This is at work. And I forget whether it was like a Wine Wednesday or a Wine Friday. I suspect it was more (laughs) a Friday. The company was probably more like a Friday. This might be prior to the Wine Wednesday phenomenon. Yeah. You know, this might, who knows, maybe even Taco Tuesday hadn't been invented yet. (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs) All right, so they're having Wine Friday at work. Yeah. And and you're working for a French guy. Turned out there were a lot of, like, wine connoisseurs at work. Some, many from California itself, but this company had people from many other countries as well. Every week was pretty interesting. The wine tastings turned out to be pretty interesting. A lot of California wine, but a lot of wines from other parts of the world. This was an interesting time because the late 80s, the California wine industry was definitely on the map. But I think a lot of people in the United States still drink a lot of European wine. Yeah, and certainly on the East Coast, California wine really hadn't made its mark. Right. I mean, yes, California wine, the judgment of Paris, 
those stories have been written about and talked about but on a day to day people going to a nice restaurant on the east coast they still order a french wine right. less like the california wine because of that history yeah but by the late 80s but but in california if you went Cal- to a yeah. restaurant right oh no doubt they were showcasing california wine and made were very proud to do that so if you walked into any good restaurant in the bay area at that time and at that point that was more focused in san francisco oakland berkeley well berkeley had its its, uh, its groove on as far as restaurants went so yeah. they must have had its groove on as far as wine, wine and you have no. a lot of educated people in berkeley yeah and there were a couple of really good wine merchants in berkeley uh, knl was one primary one. Was Kermit there yet? Uh, Kermit Lynch. Uh-huh. Yeah, Kermit Lynch. Exactly. Yeah. No, thank you. Yeah. Still in Berkeley. Yeah, still in Berkeley. They had really good selections of wines, so you could find many good wines out there. But through these wine tastings at work, I ended up making friends with other people who had interest in wine mm-hmm. outside of work. And we started meeting up for our own wine tastings at one of our homes. Okay. And now, doing that. Do any of these... Any of the wines you tasted back then, could we trace back to the first one? You were like, oh, this is good wine. This is interesting to me. Like, there's something that began the process of pulling you into wine more as a, a thing that was important to you as opposed to a fun thing to share with the people at work, with your friends. Initially, it certainly just was a fun thing. Gave me a way to meet other people. But with time, I won't say there was one wine, but certainly there was one varietal that drew me in. It was okay. Pinot Noir. Pinot Noir, uh, at that point, was still just Burgundy mm-hmm. or a small pocket of people in Sonoma. And even in Sonoma County, those of you who know Sonoma County, it was just Russian River and Carneros. I'd never heard of an Oregon Pinot. I'd never heard of a Santa Barbara Pinot at that time. And we, they well may have been, but the word hadn't gotten out. No, I'm sure, I'm sure at that time, if there was Santa Barbara Pinot, it was, there wasn't a lot of it. But Pinot, I had probably drank every kind of wine, Zinfandel, Cabernet, Syrahs. But Pinot just intrigued me. Part of what I remember what intrigued me about it was these wine tastings that we did. And the theme would be whatever, a vintage uh, from uh, Russian River. Okay. Uh, Let's say 1985 Russian River Pinots. And you had a whole maybe six bottles of it. And we did all blind tasting so we didn't know what the label was. And you taste it and it was so different. I mean, in, in many cases... The fruit came from the same vineyard. Uh, Rocchioli was one of the big growers. So it was common to have a lot of Rocchioli wine or wines by other vintners making grapes um, from Rocchioli. Even back then we were seeing the the phenomenon of the single vineyard wine. Even back then Rocchioli had established itself and people were putting Rocchioli's name on their label. Okay. But what was intriguing to me is that, yep, it, they could all be the same vintage, 1985, all same Rocchioli vineyard, different winemakers, and the wines could be very different. Right. And that's kind of connected a lot with my, just the way I think, and it's like got me just engrossed into trying to find out why. Okay. And coming to 
All right. All these wineries were largely all Sonoma County, largely Russian River. So it was easy to go visit. Okay. And so you start, you're visiting wineries. And go meet the winemaker. Okay. You're and, being, and, and actually. Back in the day. Yeah. You would go to a winery and chances are nowadays you go and it's a tasting room and it's, it's pretty far removed at a lot of places, especially bigger wineries from the process of how the wines are made, the grapes are grown, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But back in the day, yeah, you might be at a winery and the winemaker might be pouring the wine for you. Yeah, and back in the day, you almost expected to meet the winemaker okay, because they'd be pouring the wines or what we today call the vintner, the person who was responsible, the owner, who was also back in those days, they were owners because they just loved wine. And the second part of it, love talking about wine. So one thing you can guess even from this podcast, all winemakers, we love talking about wine. <laughs> and that was true back then too. I feel like we're on the cusp of, of figuring out what pushed you into the realm of wanting to make your own wine. Because you started out in the garage. I know this story. This is one of those... You know, one of those broad strokes that I know about you. You started making wine in your garage in Berkeley. Yeah. Through all these tastings, I met up with a couple of friends who became good friends at that time that were making wine. And they were making wine with this third gentleman who was studying to be a doctor. And he got a offer to be a resident in all places, Nebraska. So he decided to move there. And these two other guys needed a third partner because that's what they were used to. They said, you know, you like wine. Would you like to make some wine with us? I was like, sure. Oh, so the guy moved to Nebraska. Yeah. You get to start making wine. Started making wine. I'd been <laughs> helping them, you know. Okay. When you're making wine, you need a lot of hands. Yes. Uh, particularly harvest time, particularly when it comes to bottling. Anybody's making wine pulls in all their friends. So I'd, I'd help these guys out with bottling and harvest a couple of times okay. already. So right. You were on the periphery, and yeah. now you were going to become a Exactly. Well, you could call world. it the homemade garage <laughs> wine world. What was great about it, I mean, my days were spent you know, writing software code. Okay. In the fall, I got this chance to go out into the Russian River and go pick fruit. You know, initially we actually made Zinfandel, not Pinot Noir. The Zinfandel was, fruit was cheap, and everybody said it's easy to make Zinfandel. Okay, it's hard to screw but, it up. Yeah, hard to screw it up. So we went and picked the fruit, and the place we actually picked the fruit for was called Maze Canyon. And it was a canyon, which also meant the sun didn't really shine over there that much was cold and we were picking Zinfandel in a cooler climate can take up to late October and sometimes early November to, wow. to ripen. Where is Maze Canyon? Maze Canyon is, is is in Russian River and it's still there. The vineyard we bought fruit from is still there. It's called Porta Bass. Okay. But, you know, that was what was nice for me was being able to harvest fruit. And then bring it to our garage in uh, Berkeley to start with, and then we moved to San Francisco. How much fruit did you have? The first year, we just went made one barrel of wine, which means we needed about 1,000 pounds of fruit. Okay, half a ton. Yeah, half a, half a ton. 1,000 pounds of fruit makes a barrel, and you have some wine left over that you can use for topping and so on. But a barrel of wine, so at the end, after a year 
year we would bottle this wine and that would make about 300 bottles of wine so each of us had 100 bottles of wine that's a pretty good supply until next but, year yeah but then then we got more adventurous okay and we said how about we make two different types of wine and the following year was three and so on and we peaked at a, one year we made seven different kinds of wine what? at which point the joy kind of got out of it. <laughs> now it's starting to feel like a job. <laughs> exactly. So I, we, we cut back pretty fast. And, um, you made seven different varietals? Varietals. Seven different varietals. Seven different varietals one year, including a port. That was 1997 because that was the only year we made a port. That's why it's kind of oh, stuck. Oh, that's 1997. In, yeah. That, that overlaps with yeah. when you actually got to plant, plant yep. a vineyard. Yep which was 1995. So my interest in home winemaking, I had an opportunity to plant, well, I got an opportunity to plant a vineyard, and I took that, and then so I started planting a vineyard here at Nicholson Ranch in 19, started in 1995. So this is the Deepak that went, that wanted to go to agricultural school, coming to the forefront to plant the vineyard. I had worked for the software company, and... Um, the software company was sold, so I made a little bit of money. And so I had a little bit of money to invest. And I knew by then, like, I liked the wine business enough that that's something I would like to be close to. Rather than putting my money in some stocks and bonds, I was like, let me plant a vineyard. Wow. And that's really what I wanted to do. I wasn't thinking officially that I'm now in the wine business. Right. Right. No, not I'm gonna at all. Plant some grapes, and then I'm going to plant some grapes. People will make wine from that. Yeah, as well as It'll I knew enough. You'll be Deepak, the grape farmer. Yeah. Also, I knew enough about the wine business to be kind of cautious about you know, the financial aspects of the wine business. That right. I wasn't about to just jump into it. But I knew that I liked it enough that I uh, that if I grew good grapes, uh, I could sell grapes and. As it turned out, I got to know some commercial winemakers that, in fact, helped me, advised me on what to plant. Now, I knew I was planting Pinot, but even in Pinot, there's a lot of varieties of what we call clones of Pinot. Yes. And they really helped me select clones of Pinot that they knew made good wine. So I got some really good advice from them, as well as good customers. So they, on the other side, said, you plant it, we'll buy it. You decided on Pinot because you love Pinot or yep. because you knew that you were in a place where Pinot was going to be great? No, I, mean, I, lo- I loved Pinot. And also I knew the place would support, the weather was really good for Pinot. So where we are is actually, the way the lines are drawn, the way where Nicholson Ranch is, it's in the Sonoma Coast Appalachian. However, it's bordered on three sides by the Carneros Appalachian. Yeah, we're right across the street from Carneros. Yeah, and everybody, and in 1995, we thought we were part of Carneros as well. So there was Pinot Noir and Chardonnay being grown in this area and some really high-quality stuff by uh, at this time. Uh, but the land I planted on had never been planted to grapes, so we did a lot of uh, research, so which means you dig pits and pull out the soil from about 10 feet deep. You get the soil people. You do soil analysis. Soil science. Soil science, exactly. You look at the dirt. You look at the dirt and you send it off to a lab and you touch it and you smell it and all that. But 
you know, I had never planted a vineyard, so the touching and smelling didn't probably beyond being uh, exciting. I don't think uh, informed me much at <laughs> that well, point. Well, you, you were smart, though. You brought the experts in. You followed yeah, the science. Yeah. At what point, while you're growing the grapes, selling the grapes to wineries, did the idea of building the winery come into um, play? Probably three different things. One was the wine that these wineries made from our grapes, from my grapes, turned out to be very good. The two primary wineries that time who bought, purchased our wine, our grapes, was Landmark, which is still around, and Pats and Hall, which is also still around. Both make really good wines. And they made really good wine back then, so that was encouraging for sure. The second thing, they could make good wine, and that meant I could make good wine, but how do I make good wine? So you and got wineries making good wine from your grapes, and this is a little bit of a hurdle here. Making wine commercially is a much bigger challenge in terms of that it takes a lot more money, mm-hmm. a lot more capital, because mm-hmm. you're not buying just half a ton of grapes or right. two tons of grapes. Right. You're just scaling up. As yeah, scaling up. Scaling up. And if you're going to make good wine, you know that once you make the wine... It's going to take at least three years before you're going to sell the wine. So you've got to invest the money now. It's not like and making when, country and, liquor. And, and, <laughs> and wait to get the revenue way down the road. Right. And so that was a big decision. But as luck would turn out, is the next company, this was probably two or three companies down the road that I worked for, also had some great success. This so is your made, day job still. Yeah, my okay. day job. So had uh, good success, and this company sold as well. So again, I had some money to invest. So you're still in the software industry, and this is also the late '90s. So what was happening? This in this that is world? now late '90s. In fact, so uh, what's happening in that world? I mean, the internet is now a thing. I was in technology, but it was technology that was being applied to the financial markets. And so by mid to late 90s, there was a big boom. Yes. First dot-com boom. First dot-com boom. The software company that I worked for built software for financial markets. People who had got trained at this company were the first to actually apply this financial technology in actually investing in the markets. So... We were doing, I don't know what it would be even called today because I know everybody does it, is applying uh, you know, software and automatic trading or whatever sure. it may call it in the market. Coming up with logarithms, so algorithms. Algorithms, exactly, algorithmic trading. Which, like you said, it's commonplace now. This is how yeah, we, so we were doing this pretty early, start in about the mid-'90s, uh, but I also was very lucky to make some money at it. And I invested all that money into actually the wine business and okay. starting the winery. So this is where Nicholson Ranch begins to be built. Yep. So okay. we decided because the quality of the wine made from my grapes turned out to be really good and I had the resources to do it, I now jumped in. So I will yeah, use that word carefully because yeah, there was no turning back. You once, reached the point of no return. Yeah, once you start a winery, there's not much else you can do with a winery. You know, the half a winery, a half-built winery. You can't, do it half, you can't do it halfway. We started so, a winery, now we got to make the best damn one we can, and we exactly, got to sell it. Exactly. So that's the key thing is you get into the wine business, and that's 
people think, oh, he's making wine. That's such a romantic thing. It's so, you know, the vineyard and the grapes and harvest season. You know, think about all the movies, you know, that you see. And it seems so romantic. But at the end of the day, you have to remember, you have to sell the wine that you make. Yeah. All those romantic aspects are true. But there's a lot of other things in between. And one, you have to know how to run a business. You know how to sell the wine. There's a lot of... Um, administrative there's a lot of regulation in the wine business and you need to deal be able to deal with that and not be frustrated with that but i think the key thing is how do you sell the wine and i use the word sell in the best possible way by which i mean is how do customers somebody drinking a glass of wine what do they appreciate well, and how do they find you? And yeah, b- both aspects of it. It's like, what is it in the quality of the wine in which, what is, how they appreciate, what do they appreciate and how do you connect with that? And two is then, how do they find you? Mm-hmm. And what, which I mean, you know, finding where you can buy the wine, but really having some kind of intellectual or emotional connection to what they're drinking in the glass. And for me, that's pretty much what I what made me enjoy wine and buy wine is I would like the taste of it, but I was intrigued about where wine came from, why two winemakers from buying the same grapes made very different wine. And so, and I love to talk about that. And that's what I talked about to, to people who came and enjoyed my wine is why does my wine taste the way it does and why does my neighbor's wine possibly taste different? Right. And it was just that conversation which probably made the, connection physically as well as physical accessibility is Nicholson Ranch is very well situated on a main road connecting Napa and Sonoma so that provided easy access to a lot of our customers and provided the opportunity for them to connect with this winery let's talk about other things let's delve into your psyche a little bit Uh, what else do you like to drink Deepak we've talked about country liquor (laughs) yeah if we go to dinner, what would you have like before dinner if you weren't going to have wine right away? A gin cocktail. Oh. Start with. Yeah. I like aromatics. Mm-hmm. And so gins really intrigue me. Gin by itself, but anyway, you know, so gin with tonic water would be just fine. Sure. Or club soda would be just fine. But yeah, yeah. Any kind of gin cocktail and then, you know, all the mixologists out there coming up with some really interesting one with a little bit of cucumber here. So many. Yeah. So many options. Yeah. And a traditional Negroni is also amazing to me. You're making me thirsty now. Yeah. No. Even though I have wine in my glass. I have Pinot in my glass right now and I've been sipping it while we've been talking. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I would. (laughs) If it's a big night out, I'd probably start off with a gin cocktail for sure. We sort of touched on this. I was trying to get to the the epiphany, the wine epiphany, the one wine. The first time you said, wow, this is amazing. I think you already talked about this just a little bit. Yeah. But I think in that tasting Burgundy, and particularly, you know, sort of aged Burgundies, mm-hmm. was probably very, very interesting. The oldest wine I recall ever tasting is a 1966 and I don't remember exactly which appellation of Côte d'Or it was, but it was a Domaine Leroy. And I was pretty amazed, and I probably drank this wine sometime in the mid-2000s. 
which was probably 40 years old at that point. Oh, man. But this wasn't in the formative years. No, but Burgundy in general, you know, say Clos Vosges. Clos Vosges has 80 or 100 different winemakers that make wine from Clos Vosges. And so that same theme of like different winemakers being able to do very different things, the same fruit, play, plays out or played out in a magnified way in Burgundy. Right. And so you can find all these different Burgundies from different wineries and different winemakers. The other part of it was also just from a sensory profile. Burgundy was never all about fruit. It was always these sort of more ephemeral aromas and which we generally start calling earthy or sometimes even barnyard. <laughs> but usually it's aromas that you don't typically smell or expect to smell mm-hmm. in a beverage. Mm-hmm. It's probably what it is. You don't expect to smell it in beverage or in a, on a food and you're smelling it and you're going earthy and uh, barnyard and it makes them distinctive in some ways. That was something that also, you know, very easy for, to like create a, a sensory memory, that connection between a taste you like and creating this really specific sen- memory of it is something that you always seem to go back to and always connect with. Right. And I think Burgundy probably highlighted highlights that for me for sure. And it's something even in California you kind of try and seek out what is it about this wine that there's something the taste of it and there's something that you remember specifically that connection once you have that connection you can always identify i don't when i say identify i don't mean consciously identify but you get it right i think you just get you it where the wine's from connection yeah. with that particular thing so there was a, a smaller group of us here before we started rolling the uh rolling the digital tape for the podcast, something that came up was uh, a question that I actually had written down here on my pad. Why is wine so intimidating to a lot of people? I have people <laughs> that come into the tasting room here, and the, one of the first things they will say to me is, I don't know anything about wine. Like, it's a big confession, and they want me to know that, and I just wonder why why you think that is. Well, let me talk about why people get intimidated, possibly, about wine, and we'll talk about a mistake. I think people tend to get intimidated by wine because they come in here or to Nicholson Ranch or any tasting room or open a bottle and go to, and the first thing going through the mind is what should I be tasting? And that's exactly the wrong thought or question that should be going through the mind. When you approach a bowl plate of food you don't think about what should I be tasting? You just go ahead and taste. Right. And then you say what did I taste? So with wine, I think a lot of people go like, what should I be tasting before they've ever had a sip? And that's exactly like backward. Somehow through talk, publications, all of that, this mystique, and I'm doing the air quotes now, of wines being built up where all people think is they should know something about the wine. No, you don't really need to know nothing about it. Just sip it. I think it's almost better to know nothing. Yeah, and just people come in and say, "I don't know anything about wine." I say, "Good, I want to know what you think about our yeah, wine." Yeah, and just sip it. I want to know what you say about our wine because there are people that come in that are wine people. Yeah, and they're kind of working from the same script. You know, right. it's Pinot, so we right. we know what we're going to taste. Right, they're confident. Oh, it's Pinot. We know what we're supposed to taste. Yeah. The non-wine people are the fun people. The non-wine people are a lot of fun people because you're going to get just like the truth out of them almost. I mean, it's just more. 
who get them to be not intimidated about speaking their mind once they've had a sip of that wine. All right, this is a weird question. Who would you love to drink a bottle of wine with, living or dead? What's the first thing that pops into your mind? Uh, probably, when I was talking about Domain Leroy, probably her name is Lalu Bijou Leroy. And I may have got that wrong, but okay. probably somebody like her. And uh, This is a woman. This is a woman who was a winemaker and, and then had her own winery. And I don't know much more about her history, but and I don't even know if she is with us right now because she's probably up there in the years. But probably just because, I mean, it was, I think it was one wine that just stuck in my mind. And I know a little bit about her that, you know, she had a pretty long history in, in making wines and making some wonderful wines. Well, being a woman uh, winemaker yeah. a long time ago was probably... A pretty unique thing. No, for sure. Uh, she had some connection with the DRC, which is uh, Domain Romani Conti, which is ultra famous cult, and also it's I very don't know. expensive. That's all. Yeah, you I don't know. If, I think her family may have been part of it at some point and okay. split off, and that's one. But even here in California, what I'm intrigued about is the people, uh, the Rocciolis, Tom Dallinger, who's made some wine from Rocchioli and planted his own vineyard in mm-hmm. the 70s. So people who were real pioneers, I think, yeah, in the Pinot specifically part of making wine is that I'd be intrigued to share a bottle with. And some of it is, you know, trying to find the source. I don't think for wine, uh, finding the source is really elusive because it probably predates us a long, long time it's, ago. It's <laughs> an old, 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 old thing, yeah. wine is. Well, thank you for sharing your time with us. Yeah, my pleasure. Next time uh, you pour a glass of wine, don't think, just sip. I think that's going to look good on a bumper sticker. (laughs) (laughs) This has been the Tall Mike Wine Podcast, episode one, with Deepak Golrajani. Thank you so much. If you would like to give us any sort of feedback, my email address is available. It's tallmikewine at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at TallMikeWine69. You can look at some pretty pictures of what I cook for dinner every night on Instagram at TallMikeWine. That's really all I can tell you right now about me and the podcast. Hopefully, wherever you get your podcasts, you'll sign up to get ours on a regular basis. When we produce the second one, we'll put it up there and we'll get it ready for you as soon as we can. The show is conceived, written, produced, and edited by yours truly and recorded on a program called Audacity. We hope to see you again sometime soon. From Nicholson Ranch, this is Mike Stone. Thanks for tuning in, and cheers to you.